1: Russian troops have broken into part of the Mariupol steel plants, but will the remaining innocent Ukrainians trapped inside actually be given a chance to get out alive? Then, how this little pill could be the next target for the anti-abortion movement when and if Roe v. Wade fails? Plus, tragic new figures about just how many people died from COVID around the world. Turns out the suspected death toll is higher than reported, much higher.
2: This is CNN Breaking News.
1: Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start with breaking news in our money lead, a huge sell-off on Wall Street today. The Dow just closing down 1,059 points. The Nasdaq and S&P also taking Huge hits. The loss is coming one day after big gains. Let's get to CNN's Richard Quest, the host of Quest Means Business. Richard, what is behind today's massive sell off?
3: Reality check, Jake. The reality that the Fed is going to have to raise rates and maybe harder and faster than anybody thought, and that is going to slow the economy. Now, you, there are many economists who said, duh, we knew that was coming. Why all of a shock? The reason is because there had been a hope, a prayer, whatever, that they were going to get this soft landing. It's looking less likely now, and that means inflation will be, remain high for the foreseeable future. We may see an uptick in unemployment over the longer term, and we may see a recession into next year. That reality has finally dawned on the market. Richard, should
1: we continue to expect stocks to stay in this roller coaster pattern for the immediate future?
3: Absolutely, take that to the bank. There's well, the market is looking for a bottom. It's looking to capitulate. It's waiting for that moment when things become so cheap you even buy them to make soup. It's it. it the market is simply now. It's ent- not panicked. It is. Turmoiled trying to determine what the future direction of economic activity is. How far will J Powell have to go? How high will interest rates go and how quickly? And until we get clarity on that, look, I know, listen, you, me, everyone, 401ks tonight, you're starting to think, good grief. What do I do? If you don't have to do anything, don't. This will play itself out. And the last thing you want to be is on the looking down the freight train of the market heading towards you.
1: All right, Richard Quest, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Turning to our world lead now and a Russian breach at the Mariupol steel plant where Ukrainian fighters are making their last stand. That's according to a Ukrainian commander on the ground at the Azovstal complex who tells CNN that, quote, fierce, bloody combat is ongoing. The Ukrainians are accusing Russian forces of violating a truce today, which would have allowed more civilians to escape the steel plant. The United Nations says another evacuation convoy is on its way to the plant right now and scheduled to arrive by tomorrow morning in hopes Ukrainians will be able to get out alive. North of Mariupol, in the town of Kramatorsk, at least 25 people were injured after a series of Russian missile strikes overnight. CNN's Sam Kylie toured the damage earlier today.
4: They have had clearly a devastating impact. This is a heating, a pumping station, sewage area. The size of the building would indicate that it was in no way could have housed any kind of military equipment. But the scenes here are absolutely extraordinary. The way that these trees have been completely decapitated, torn to shreds. And the same goes also for these homes.
1: Also today, a heartbreaking reminder of the cost of this war. On innocent Ukrainian civilians, a 15-year-old volunteer has been killed at a zoo in the town of Kharkiv while helping his parents evacuate animals from incoming Russian fire. Zoo officials say this is the sixth member of their team killed since Russia's invasion began. CNN's Isis Suarez starts off our coverage today from Lviv in western Ukraine with a closer look at the desperate efforts to help save more civilians from the besieged plant in Mariupol.
5: Ukrainian soldiers trapped in the Azovstal plant sing the army's battle hymn. It is sweeter for us to die in battle than to live in chains as dumb slaves, they sing in the darkness. A few of the dozens of Ukrainian fighters defending the last patch of Mariupol, not in Russian hands. Above them, the bombardment continues, relentlessly. Later, one of the commanders with a message for the world. It's been the third day that the enemy has broken through the territory of Azovstal. Fierce bloody combat is ongoing, he says, accusing the Russians of violating the promise of a truce and preventing the evacuation of civilians who continue to hide deep in bunkers at Azovstal. The UN and Red Cross organized the evacuation of one group of about 100 civilians at the weekend. Since then, none has left. Now there is hope of another convoy reaching Mariupol.
1: As we speak,
6: a convoy is proceeding to get to Azovstal by tomorrow morning, hopefully to receive those civilians remaining in that bleak hell that they have inhabited for so many weeks and months and take them back to safety.
5: Speaking to me earlier, the military governor, Donetsk, was much more cautious.
7: would like to be frank that with all due respect for the UN and their assistance and the International Committee of the Red Cross, the conditions
8: that
0: are
7: such that the occupier keeps changing them and uh, the Russian Federation does everything sometimes in a way that uh, the These um, agreements keep changing, so I would rather speak of results
5: um, of the second stage in evacuation. The Russians and their allies, the separatists of the self-styled Donetsk People's Republic, are showing off their newly won territory, or at least the ruins they fought to seize. This commander points to a massive crater just outside the Azovstal plant, He says the bodies of Ukrainian soldiers are everywhere. We find more and more of them, he adds. Amid the ruins of Mariupol, once a thriving city of 400,000 people, the new authorities are changing the road signs into Russian. Ukrainian officials expect they will organize a parade on May 9th, when Russia celebrates its victory in the Second World War. Whether the Azovstar complex is quiet and emptied by then, or still being pulverized, no one knows. What's certain? Are the scars that will remain. And Jake, what is clear as you look at those images is that it's a brutal and a bloody fight there for Mariupol. And it is ongoing I think it 's worth reminding viewers that this is not the image've been seen this is not a video game this is not a movie this is real life and there are people inside more uh, than some two hundred people two hundred civilians some thirty children who haven 't seen sunlight for some sixty days or so so hopefully we're through the U.N. and through the Red Cross. That evacuation can take place uh, early tomorrow. Of course, we have been here before, and the Russians haven't, have not broken their promises. But the U.N. clearly hoping that this will be the day that they can actually leave uh, the U.N. envoy calling it a hellhole.
1: Isis Forrest reporting live for us from Lviv, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Today, the White House is pushing back on a New York Times report The claimed U.S. intelligence is providing information about the whereabouts of Russian generals, giving that information to Ukrainian forces so those generals can be killed. CNN's Caitlin Collins joins us now live at the White House. Caitlin, what exactly are Biden administration officials saying? Are, Are they making an outright denial?
9: jake they are denying it but they're doing so carefully because they're also stating what we know and what we have reported here at cnn which is that yes the u.s is providing ukraine with intelligence to help them on the battlefield but they are adding a very important caveat after this story was published saying quote we do not provide intelligence with the intent to kill russian generals of course jake saying with the intent there to kill russian generals is a lot of leeway for this white house who is saying that they are not providing specific intelligence to these ukrainian forces to help them assassinate russian generals which of course we have seen several of the russian generals killed since this invasion began this is obviously something that the pentagon was asked about today during their briefing and here's what the pentagon spokesperson said
8: do not provide intelligence on the location of senior military leaders on the battlefield or participate in the targeting decisions of the Ukrainian military. Ukraine combines information that we and other partners provide with the intelligence that they themselves are gathering.
9: So, Jake, basically their argument is that, yes, we provide the Ukrainians with the intelligence. They have their own intelligence operation, of course. And what they do with that when they put two and two together is up to the Ukrainians not coming at a U.S. directive. We should note, Jake, this comes as a top Russian officer recently visited the front lines in this invasion in Ukraine. So that's what makes this uh, obviously so important and why the White House is weighing in so much.
1: Yeah, it doesn't really seem like a denial telling them where the Russian general is, but they can do whatever they want with that information. What do they think they're going to do with the information? But um, moving on, Caitlin. Today, U.S. officials announced another crackdown on, on Russian elites—an economic crackdown on Russian elites friendly to Putin—to the tune of 300 million dollars.
9: Yeah, Jake. This is a yacht that was seized by authorities in Fiji at the request of the Justice Department. You can see the yacht here. It's 300 feet long, or 300 million dollars. 348. Feet long. The White House says that they did this at the request of the Justice Department, got the authorities there in Fiji involved because it is owned by a Russian oligarch who they said made, made his fortune from gold. The U.S. says that on this affidavit when they seized this yacht that he was placed on a U.S. sanctions list, that he evaded those sanctions and basically broke those sanctions by using the U.S. banking system for the expenses that came with this 300-foot yacht. They have now, of course, since seized it. And the Deputy Attorney General said that it should tell every corrupt Russian oligarch they cannot hide, not even in the most remote part of the world, Jake.
1: And Caitlin, uh, just a few minutes ago, the White House announced who is going to replace Jen Psaki when she leaves her role as White House press secretary next next week. Tell us more.
9: Yes, Jake. This is, of course, significant. Jen Psaki has been widely expected to leave for several weeks now. She will leave on May 13th. And the principal deputy press secretary, Corrine Jean-Pierre, will be replacing her as the next White House press secretary, Jake. And it's not just notable because she is replacing Jen Psaki at the lectern. It's also notable because she will be making history with this role, becoming the first black person to hold this title as the chief spokesperson for the White House. Also the first openly LGBTQ person to hold this role. She will step into that role. Role formally in the next coming weeks, Jake. Though people will be familiar with her because she's taken over for Saki at the lectern several times before. She's often in the room when Saki is taking our questions, and of course, remember she filled in on President Biden's trip to Europe when Saki had tested positive for COVID-19. So she will be the new face of the administration, as of course we reported. Saki is expected to leave for cable news, Jake.
1: All right, Caitlin Collins at the White House. Thank you so much. Joining us now to discuss. Democratic Senator Chris Coons of Delaware, he's on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Senator, let's start uh, with the White House pushback today uh, on that New York Times story. The U.S. wants Ukraine to win this war. Why would it not be part of the U.S. strategy to openly help Ukraine defeat the Russian forces that invaded them and are committing these crimes against humanity by killing Russian generals? Why is that something that we would hide?
10: I'm not really sure uh, what the motivation is behind that uh, parsing of our intelligence partnership with Ukraine, Jake. But I support strongly President Biden's leadership in sending uh, more and more sophisticated and heavier weapons uh, to support Ukraine's defense against Vladimir Putin's unjustified invasion. Uh, There is an additional request in front of Congress right now uh, that I hope we will take up and pass next week to provide billions more in funding both military assistance and humanitarian assistance. As you know, Jake, uh, Ukraine is often called the breadbasket of Eastern Europe. Uh, It is one of the world's largest uh, producers of wheat and sunflower oil. Uh, We need to be providing support, uh, not just for the brave and patriotic fighters who are defending Ukraine, uh, but for the tens of millions of Ukrainians who will be hungry, both inside the country and those uh, who are displaced and now living in other countries around the region. I think President Biden has provided strong support, and so has the rest of the West, whether it's intelligence or weapons or material. Uh, and I think that's an important part of the West coming together behind Ukraine.
1: So the president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, spoke with the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson today, Uh, The U.K. says Zelensky asked for, quote, longer-range weaponry to prevent the bombardment of civilians, unquote. Could the U.S. be giving Ukraine even more? Uh, And is this aid that is sitting in Congress right now waiting for Congress to act, these longer-range weapons?
10: Well, to be clear, Congress uh, takes up and passes legislation um, authorizing and appropriating money, and then the president authorizes the Department of Defense. To transfer and deliver weapons or other support to Ukraine. Uh, Right now, uh, the Department of Defense is delivering weapons that we uh, funded and the President approved weeks ago. For example, 155-millimeter howitzers, uh, far more sophisticated, longer-range artillery than we'd previously provided. We're also providing a new class of drone. Uh, so-called ghost drones as well as switchblades uh, drones that can carry uh, a larger payload and go farther Uh, there's other systems that we can and I think should deliver and some of our key partners in NATO our Eastern European partners are also providing heavy weaponry uh, multiple launch systems uh, longer-range artillery um, the stingers and javelins uh, the both surface-to-air and uh, anti-tank missiles that have been used so effectively by Ukrainian defenders over the last six weeks, uh, as well as anti-ship missiles uh, that Ukrainians have used successfully uh, to sink uh, mm-hmm. Russian ships in the Black Sea.
1: I want to switch topics, ask you uh, about abortion rights in this country in the wake of this draft opinion, showing that the U.S. Supreme Court appears poised to strike down Roe v. Wade. Um, President Biden is calling on Congress to act and pass laws protecting Uh, a woman's right to an abortion, Uh, it appears that Democrats in the Senate simply don't have the votes to pass this bill. I'm not even sure you have 50 votes, much less uh, 60. So realistically speaking, is there anything Congress can do? Uh, Jake, we are going to have a vote on the floor of the Senate next week so the American people can be clear
10: uh, on which party stands where on this core and defining issue. This is the first time in my adult life um, that the rights of Americans, the rights of tens of millions of American women uh, to make choices about their own reproductive health care will be rolled back. Uh, The right to an abortion, which 50 years ago, the Supreme Court put into our law through Roe versus Wade, Um, even though it's been modified over many years, um, it has stood as one of the pillars uh, of our understanding of that balance between privacy, uh, making one's own decisions uh, in reproduction Mm -hmm. uh, and the role of the federal government. So Uh, Frankly, we need a bigger uh, pro-choice majority in the Senate for us to be able to have an impact uh, on extending federal protections. Um, And that's going to be one of the issues I expect we'll be talking about uh, over the weeks and months to come here in the Senate. Uh,
1: Quickly, if you could, uh, some of your colleagues have said uh, that Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Gorsuch uh, were not honest about their positions when it came to Roe v. Wade as a precedent. Uh, Do you agree? Do you think they lied to Congress? I'd say that um, several of the
10: justices uh, who I questioned and interviewed during the confirmation process uh, gave the strong impression that they would respect precedent, that they would not overturn uh, a long-established, well-respected, broadly well-regarded precedent uh, like Roe v. Wade without some surprise or change or cause. Um, So I certainly feel that. Um, they were not being uh, fully forthcoming in suggesting that they would respect stare decisis. Uh, I voted against both Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Gorsuch in part because uh, I found it hard to believe that given the opportunity, uh, they would not reverse Roe v. Wade uh, based on things uh, that they had said and written. Uh, My strong hunch was that even though uh, this is one of the pillars of modern constitutional law in the United States, that given the opportunity... They likely would vote, Um, and although this is a leaked preliminary draft, um, I urge everyone watching to read it. The language is bracing and clear, um, and there are other long-established rights, like the right to access contraception, uh, like the right to same-sex marriage, uh, which might also now be um, up for
1: reversal by this activist Mm -hmm. conservative majority. All right, Democratic Senator Chris Coons of Delaware, thanks so much for your time today. Chief Justice John Roberts speaking publicly for the first time since that leak of the Supreme Court draft opinion indicating Roe v. Wade is on the precipice of being overturned. What the chief is saying, what he's not saying about the bombshell leak. That's next. In the politics lead today, moments ago, the first public appearance of Chief Justice of the United States, John Roberts, since shockwaves from the Supreme Court when someone somehow leaked to Politico a draft opinion indicating that the Supreme Court is poised to overturn Roe v. Wade as soon as next month. The 1973 decision has guaranteed constitutional protection for women seeking an abortion for the first 23 to 24 weeks of a pregnancy with possible restrictions depending on the state for almost half a century in the U.S. CNN's Ariane DeVogue is in Atlanta, where Chief Justice Roberts just spoke Ariane this week. Roberts confirmed that the leaked draft opinion is authentic, and he called for an investigation by the marshal of the Supreme Court. But I understand he said a whole lot more just now.
11: Right. These are his first uh, comments in public. And he called that leak absolutely appalling. Uh, But he said it would be foolish for people to think that it's going to really affect how the court does its job. Uh, he really praised the Supreme Court's workforce, and he said that he hoped that put one bad apple wouldn't change uh, the public's perception of the court. But whatever he says, that leak was absolutely stunning. And the breadth of the opinion, even though it's a draft opinion put forward by Alito, is really broad, calling Roe v. Wade egregiously wrong, saying that this uh, issue needs to go back to the states. That's really bad news supporters of abortion rights who point out that nearly half the states have laws on the books uh, that either uh, restrict or um, abolish abortion altogether. Uh, the fallout, as we've seen since the leak came out, has been very broad on both sides, even some demonstrations. But you've had some people question what's going to be next, including the president, because Alito, in that opinion, he tried to really wall it in and say this is just about abortion. But a lot of the legal reasoning that was used in Rojay was also used in other cases, particularly in that same-sex marriage case. So their fear, uh, supporters of abortion rights, is that the, this court, this conservative court, has just gotten started. And lastly, all of this comes really at the court's busy season, because they're not having oral arguments anymore. Uh, But they are working behind the scenes, not only to finish this abortion case, but there's a big Second Amendment case, religious liberty cases, uh, an environmental case. Those are all pending. They take frank conversations between the justices. And after this leak, you can see how justices would be nervous that their closed-door deliberations are somehow going to leak out and make it onto the front pages, Jake.
1: Ariane de Vogue, thank you so much, appreciate it. Thousands of women don't go to a doctor to get an abortion. They take a regimen of pills. Would that be at risk if Roe v. Wade is overturned? We'll take a closer look next. In our politics lead with the Supreme Court seemingly poised to strike down Roe v. Wade, the landmark 1973 case that guaranteed the right to abortion nationwide... Analysts say the next frontier in this struggle will be the availability of abortion pills by mail. More than 54% of all abortions in the United States were induced by pills in 2020. That's according to the Guttmacher Institute, a research organization that supports abortion rights. And as CNN's Tom Foreman reports for us now, suppliers of these medications say they intend to continue sending them to the U.S. no matter what state laws say.
12: For those intent on ending abortions in parts of the United States, the biggest barrier may now not be politics but pills, which researchers say are effective, available and now used for more than half of all abortions. Abortion activists have been quietly building a whole new business model to target young women uh, on their phones to click, uh, get information and receive abortion drug by mail. The Food and Drug Administration approved mail order supplies of the so called abortion pills with a prescription this past December for women in the first 10 weeks of pregnancy. Advocates insist it is less invasive, more discreet, and just as safe as surgical abortion.
0: And oftentimes people choose this for various reasons. They want to be able to manage their abortion in their own home, um, with their family, and, you know, around in a surround that they're comfortable with.
13: We have seen an incredible increase of, uh, of, demand, of requests of help. Uh, people are really, really scared of what's going to happen.
12: That's why some abortion rights supporters, such as Women on Waves, based in the Netherlands, say they are already facilitating shipments of the drugs to women in far-flung corners of the U.S. And they're promising to step up the effort no matter where those women are or what state laws say.
13: What I'm doing is legal um, under the, uh, the laws where I work from. And I actually, I have a medical oath to do this. I'm a doctor. My oath is that I help people that are in need. And that is what I am doing.
12: The states that are trying to stamp out abortion are writing all sorts of little lines in their law to try to attack this, going after websites, going after out-of-state providers, over foreign providers. They're doing everything they can, but Jake, the proponents of abortion rights say this is some place where they think they may have an edge. Maybe may be hard for some women to figure out the websites, particularly women in some communities, but once they do, they say what it's going to be is these states trying to catch up with five little pills making their way to a woman that they see as being in need. And they think that this will prove almost impossible for the states to enforce.
1: Hmm. Tom Foreman, thanks so much. Here to discuss Florida State law professor Mary Ziegler, the author of the upcoming book, Dollars for Life, the Anti-Abortion Movement and the Fall of the Republican Establishment. Professor Ziegler, um, thanks for joining us. What are some of the laws already on the books uh, that might make it illegal to sell medication such as this that induces abortion?
14: Well, there are already 19 states, Jake, that uh, ban telehealth abortion, which would be the kind of through-the-mail scheme that uh, Tom was describing. Of course, if Roe v. Wade falls, as we expect after this leaked draft, um, we would expect somewhere between 20 and 26 states to criminalize abortion outright, and that would, of course, include abortion by pill. So that would mean not only that there'd be restrictions on the use of these pills, there would be outright bans. Um, Whether those bans would be easily enforceable obviously raises a much more difficult question.
1: Would the laws that already exist ban medications such as the morning after pill or Plan B? Do, do you think lawmakers will try to outlaw all, everything?
14: Well, the the definition of abortion has been historically contested. So if for the most part, when states have actually got around to defining abortion, they try to make clear that they're not banning contraceptives. But that's not a view that's universally held within the the pro-life or anti-abortion movement. There are people, of course, during the debate about the contraceptive mandate of Obamacare who took the position, as you mentioned, that IUDs or the morning after pill or steps in infertility treatment. Um, were all abortion-inducing drugs. So I would expect to see a live debate about that in states as they ban abortion. Um, and I would expect to see more states being willing to define abortion expansively um, in a post-rural America than we might see today.
1: But if that happens, I'm not sure how familiar uh, everybody is with birth control pills or IUDs or, or, or the morning-after pill. If that were to happen, it were uh, these legislatures to ban these pills does that mean, I mean, wouldn't contraception get caught up in that?
14: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, because the the line between abortion and contraception has never been um, as undisputed and clear as we may think it is. And in a world where abortion can be criminalized again, that's going to become really quick in a hurry, I think. States may have both constitutional reasons because, of course, there are separate constitutional precedents on the right to use contraception. They may have those reasons to avoid this. They may think politically it's a bad idea to wade into um, regulating contra- what some view as contraception, but we know from the contraceptive mandate debate that this is an issue about which a lot of conservatives feel really strongly. So there's no saying that states will not sweep in uh, contraception as well as abortion.
1: There are situations where there there is a medical problem where, with the fetus, um, or it's in the wrong mm-hmm. location for the uh, for the body, forcing forcing a woman. Uh, to seek an abortion for a very wanted pregnancy. Um, What do we know about the legality of that going forward? Would those also be banned?
14: Yeah, most states don't have exceptions for really any scenario other than um, the life of the pregnant person. And even that is a pretty narrow exception, because as you can imagine, if you're a doctor facing a felony charge and the loss of your license and a serious period of imprisonment, Um, And you're not sure if something is going to be criminally penalized or not. Say, if you're treating someone who's had an incomplete miscarriage, um, some doctors are likely to refuse care in those instances, too, because there'll be a chilling effect of these criminal laws. Um, And the reasons authorized under the laws for abortion, as I mentioned, are exceedingly rare. They don't include um, some of the kinds of cases you mentioned. I think some states are considering conditions incompatible with life or ectopic pregnancies as exceptions. Other states are not, though, so we're talking about a very narrow range of exceptions.
1: And lawmakers in some states are adopting so-called abortion travel bans, which would make it illegal for someone to leave their state to get a legal abortion in a different state. Is that even constitutional?
14: The short answer is we don't know, right? So there are questions this raises about the constitutional right to travel, which is one that has a pretty impeccable pedigree, as well as the so-called dormant Commerce Clause, which which regulates how states affect commerce in other states. But neither of those areas of the law um, is very well developed. Uh, We know we have a conservative Supreme Court that's skeptical of the idea of um, a right to choose abortion, but we have very little doctrinal guidance. So if states do wade into this area, Um, we're going to see a brand new round of the abortion wars. The elimination of Roe v. Wade will be the end of one chapter, but the beginning of an equally messy chapter.
1: All right, Mary Ziegler, author of the upcoming book, Dollars for Life, the Anti-Abortion Movement, and the Fall of the Republican Establishment. Thanks so much for your expertise. Coming up, deaths from COVID could be almost three times more than previously thought. What's behind the new estimate? And are we at the start of a new deadly surge in the United States? Stay with us. In our healthy, disturbing new estimates on the staggering worldwide death toll caused by the COVID pandemic, the World Health Organization is now estimating that nearly 15, 1, 5 million people died as a direct or indirect result of COVID between January 1st, 2020 and December 31st, 2021. Joining us now to help break down these numbers is Dr. Saju Matthew. Uh, Dr. Matthew, thanks for joining us. So the WHO says there were 9.5 million excess mortality deaths during that time frame. Help us understand the discrepancy with this reported number. What's going on here?
13: Yeah, so excess mortality, Jake, is going to be an extremely important number, especially for people like me who is a public health specialist, because what that really means is you take the number of deaths that happened during the pandemic and you subtract that from a year where the pandemic didn't exist. And those excess numbers can be attributed to COVID-19. In fact, to be honest with you, Jake, I'm actually surprised that it's actually that low. I think that this number has been grossly underestimated because firstly, uh, if you look at countries like India, where people were dying on the streets, couldn't get oxygen, people were dying actually in rural areas, none of those people have been included in that number. And I have close ties with Nigeria where I was born and raised. Look at Africa. This continent, I thought, would have been hit really hard, but fortunately, even with low vaccination rates, their mortality rates are lower. So this number is going to be a very important number for us to understand. And here in the U.S., Jake, I had a good number of my patients who were trying to make it to the ER for a heart attack and stroke, but actually ended up dying in the ambulance because of COVID surges. So they need to be included as well in this overall excess uh, mortality rate.
1: Let's talk about what's going on in the U.S. right now because hospitalizations are up for the second straight week. The CDC says the number of hospitalizations and deaths are forecast to rise over the next four weeks. This is the first time the CDC has predicted an increase in deaths since February. Why is this happening? How concerned is the public health community.
13: Um, I'm really concerned. I mean, I don't wanna say that I told you so, Jake, but I've definitely been one of many medical analysts that was really unhappy about lifting the mask mandates. I mean, I know a lot of people will say, oh, here, here goes Dr. Matthew again with the mask." But if you look at how people are living in this country, it's like the pandemic doesn't exist anymore. People are getting infected left and right. They're not testing. Uh, Most people are getting tested at home. So again, those numbers are not included. In Georgia, the cases are not being reported consistently. So there's a lot of underestimation of the daily cases. When we say there's 60,000 per day, I think it's probably five or tenfold higher. And currently there is a surge in most states. Hospitalizations are ticking up. I was at an urgent care yesterday, talked to one of our PAs. She saw 70 patients in a 10 hour period Thirty of them were positive, and the people that are unvaccinated were sicker. But we still had a good number of people who were vaccinated and boosted, Jake, that also tested positive for COVID.
1: Doctor, hmm. said, Jim Matthew, thank you so much. Appreciate it. We have some breaking news now out of Israel, where there's been another terrorist attack. We're going to go live to the scene next. Stay with us. Breaking news from Israel in our world: lead another in a series of deadly terrorist attacks that have left in totality at least 18 Israelis dead since March. The latest three deaths happened today in an attack north of Jerusalem in a town called Elad. CNN's Hadass Gold is there. Hadass, tell us what happened.
7: Well, Jake, today is Israel's Independence Day, and this is a quiet, mostly Orthodox town in central Israel. But around 8.30 p.m. tonight on the street just behind me, Two alleged attackers began attacking people on the street. Police say they believe they used a rifle and possibly a knife and or an axe. And then they fled in a vehicle. There's now a massive manhunt underway for these alleged attackers. We've been hearing police helicopters hovering above us uh, since we've gotten here. And there are police roadblocks on all of the roads leading into the city. There's a very, very heavy police and military presence. Now, so far, no one is, no main group, militant group, terrorist group is claiming crime. Credit for this attack. Although Hamas, the militant group that runs Gaza, immediately put out a statement praising the attack, Jake.
1: And Hadass, as we said, this, this is the latest in a series of terrorist attacks uh, across uh, Israel and the West Bank that started in March.
7: Yeah, Jake, this is the sixth attack targeting Israelis since late March. Eighteen people now dead, if you count the three people who were killed tonight. I should also note that four people were injured in this attack. And it's been a tense and violent few months. Israel, in response to those attacks, stepped up their military operations in the West Bank. And those raids and clashes led to at least two dozen Palestinians being killed. We've also seen regular clashes at the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound, also known as the Temple Mount, a place so holy in Jerusalem to both Jews and Muslims. And while many people were hoping that the end of Ramadan would bring some calm to the situation, Israeli officials I were speaking to said that they were preparing for more violence, more tension, uh, more deaths, because today's Israeli Independence Day, Jake, and next week is the one-year anniversary of that 11-day war between Hamas and militants in Gaza and the Israeli army.
1: All right, Hadass Gold, thank you so much. Appreciate it. On the run now for almost a week, coming up, the new clues and the manhunt for the missing murder suspect and the corrections officer who took off with him. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, it has been seven days since an Alabama corrections officer was seen leaving jail with a capital murder suspect. Are investigators any closer to tracking down the wanted pair? Plus, More questions than answers about what is happening on board a United States aircraft carrier where seven sailors have died at least four by suicide in the past year. CNN talks to sailors who have been stationed on the troubled USS George Washington. And leading this hour, there has been a breach by Russian forces at the steel plant in Mariupol where Ukrainian forces have been resisting the Russian advances and bombardment for months. But the fate of the innocent civilians who have been sheltering inside the plant That remains unknown. And now as CNN's Scott McLean reports from Lviv, United Nations officials say another evacuation convoy is on the way to Azovstal. This is the last bastion of Ukrainian
2: resistance in Mariupol, the Azovstal steel plant, under what a city official calls non-stop shelling and assault by Russian forces. Inside, an untold number of civilians are still trapped as a bloody battle rages. The commander of Ukrainian troops in the plant saying Thursday, fierce combat is ongoing. After, he says, Russian forces breached the compound's barrier. The commander begging for transport of the bodies of soldiers who've died in weeks of violence at the complex. He pleads for more evacuations of civilians still trapped inside. The United Nations says it's hard to know exactly how many remain, but they are trying to send help.
6: A convoy is proceeding to get to Azovstal by tomorrow morning, hopefully to receive those civilians remaining in that bleak hell that they have inhabited for so many weeks and months, and take them back to safety."
2: On Thursday, Putin promised safe passage for civilians out of Mariupol, and the Kremlin denied an assault on Azovstal. But as Russian forces besiege the city from all sides, Ukrainian troops say the plant is a final holdout for Mariupol's last defenders as the enemy closes in. An exceptionally bitter fight for a city that's vital to Putin's war effort in Ukraine. Full control over Mariupol completes a Russian-controlled land corridor between its mainland and Russian-controlled Crimea. It also means Russian access to the port city's key export hubs on the Black Sea. A major blow to Ukraine, whose remaining soldiers fight at all costs to protect the strategically important city. Inside the Azovstal steel plant, Ukrainian forces singing a battle
15: hymn.
2: It's sweeter to die in battle than to live in chains as slaves, they chant. Prepared to fight for Mariupol and Ukraine until the bitter end. And the military governor of the Donetsk region also confirmed that that evacuation mission is underway, but he didn't want to say more until he has some good news to report. And that is because he says, despite the involvement of the United Nations and the Red Cross, the Russians are constantly changing their agreements and their conditions for evacuations, which means the success of the operation, Jake, is hardly a guarantee.
1: Scott McLean reporting for us from Lviv, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Turning now to Moscow, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov dismissed reports that the Russian army has broken into the steel plant in Mariupol, saying Putin's order to avoid storming the plant remains in place. CNN's Matthew Chance is live for us in Moscow, where we should note the Kremlin has imposed strict laws regarding how Russia's presence in Ukraine is allowed to be described. Matthew, what exactly is Peskov saying today?
4: Yeah, they're also uh, making, making it clear through through laws that have been passed in this country that if you spread what the Kremlin regards as fake news, that can be criminal and can result in, in, in prosecution. And what the Kremlin are saying today is that it is fake news uh, that... Um, the Russians had broken through uh, into the azov steel factory and uh, tried to storm it. Uh, the Kremlin spokesman, Dmitry Peskov, saying earlier today uh, that the order had been given by Vladimir Putin, the commander in chief of the Russian armed forces, remember, um, not to storm the Azov-style uh, factory because of the people inside. And that order, the Kremlin spokesman said, uh, still stands. And so a a categorical denial on the part of the Kremlin uh, that 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 kind of military action has take place. They also, by the way, say, and I think this was referred to earlier by Scott, that the humanitarian corridors uh, that had been agreed between the Russians and the Ukrainians, the Russians are saying that those corridors are open and available for civilians inside that steel factory to make their way out. Uh, into safety. Although, of course, it's very difficult for us to independently verify the actual uh, situation on the ground, Jake.
1: Earlier today, Putin had a call with Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett. This, of course, comes after Russia's foreign minister said Adolf Hitler had Jewish blood. That's a historically proven false claim and something Israel as a government harshly condemned. Today, Israeli officials claimed that on that phone call, Putin
4: apologized. What is the Kremlin saying? You know, that, that's definitely what the, the Israeli readout said. That, you know, as part of that call, um, uh, President Putin had apologized uh, for the remarks of the Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov about uh, that sort of slander uh, that the worst anti Semites, to, to paraphrase Sergei Lavrov, are Jewish people and that uh, Adolf Hitler himself may have been partly Jewish, a uh, d- discredited conspiracy uh, theory. Uh, the Russians. Have not mentioned that uh, apology. Uh, they were asked about it. I've asked them about it, and they haven't responded to me. But Russian state media has also asked the Kremlin about it, and they simply said, "Look, that the list of topics that was discussed, that were discussed between President Putin and the Israeli uh, Premier, have been have been set out and made public. And they were uh, things like the situation, the security situation on the ground in Ukraine, and the status of Russia's special." military operation, as it calls it. Um, and a congratulation note, uh, a congratulation um, remark, rather, uh, from Vladimir Putin uh, to Israel, uh, marking uh, not just its Independence Day, which is today, but also uh, on the eve of the Victory Day celebrations, commemorations to mark the end of, of the, the victory over, over Nazi Germany, marked on May the 9th in both Russia uh, and in Israel. Vladimir Putin uh, is um, telling the Israeli prime minister that it was 40% of the Jews that were killed by Nazi Germany were from the Soviet Union. That's what uh, the figure that was put out in uh, his uh, the readout from the Kremlin about that telephone conversation. But again, no reference to an apology, Jake.
1: All right, Matthew Chance in Moscow for us. Thank you so much. Here to discuss all of this, Timothy Mylovanov. He's the former minister of economy for Ukraine. And he is the president of, of Kiev's School of Economics. Uh, Timothy, uh, thanks so much for joining us. For our American audience, Mariupol is about the size of Minneapolis. It's in a strategic location that, that would allow Russia to create a land bridge through Ukraine to Kremlin-controlled Crimea, which it annexed and seized in 2014. That is one of the reasons why Russia has been so focused on Mariupol. Explain how important Mariupol is to Ukraine's economy and why.
6: You are correct. Uh, This is a strategic location which connects the the east of Ukraine with Crimea. And uh, that would allow Russia to establish a corridor. It's also one of the major ports for Ukraine. Now, unfortunately, it's not functional anymore, regardless of what is going to happen with Mariupol uh, in the next weeks or months. Uh, but uh, it was a major uh, source or, or port for experts. However, Ukraine has uh, ad- uh, transformed or adapted to the environment uh, in the east of Ukraine. And now most of the experts were going through Odessa. Odessa is blockaded too.
1: In addition to the tens of thousands of innocent civilians that the Russians have killed, uh, Russian shelling has also cut off water lines and power lines and rail links, destroyed bridges. Uh, to Mariupol. When it comes to infrastructure, what is the most critical need that Ukraine has right now?
6: Overall, the Russian troops or attacks are trying to target right now railroads and uh, roads, and also fuel uh, depots and uh, oil refineries. So making logistics most difficult, uh, cutting, disrupting the supply lines. Um, That's, I think, the critical infrastructure. More recently, over the last um, several days, they have started targeting also energy infrastructure, including the the power stations which are related to the railroad. So they are going after that uh, energy and uh, logistical infrastructure.
1: The Kiev School of Economics, where where you're the president, says right now that Russia's invasion of Ukraine is causing damage to Ukraine's infrastructure at the cost of $4.5 billion a week. $4.5 4.5 billion a week how damaging is that
6: the total uh, direct loss is about 92 billion dollars and uh, the indirect loss is ex- uh, estimated at 5 to 600 uh, billion dollars uh, to put it into perspective uh, the numbers which were we were seeing from syria of direct loss was in the area of 40 45 billion dollars so it's already much more significant than uh, other uh, wars that have recently been happening.
1: Yeah, and just to put that in perspective, $600 billion, that's almost four times Ukraine's gross domestic product. Is Ukraine going to be able to rebuild?
6: With the support of the international community, yes. Uh, furthermore, it has to be done um as in a very systemic and a very well-designed uh, manner. Otherwise, it is going to be a major challenge.
1: Finally, uh, you still advise the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, on economic policy. What is his biggest concern right now when it comes to economic policy?
6: Well, uh, my understanding is the president's focused on the war, uh, but uh, he's both... Uh, uh, focusing and giving uh, priorities uh, on maintaining the operations of the economy and that's fiscal that's gas uh, fuel energy that's food uh, that's uh, payment including social payments as well as thinking forward uh, about how the reconstruction process uh, will happen after the war and how it should be ongoing already in the areas which are under the control of the ukrainian troops
1: all right, Timothy, my love, and I, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, he survived being injured in the Battle of Mariupol, only to find himself held captive in Russia. How he was used as a pawn in Putin's war. Plus, the latest scandal for North Carolina Congressman Madison Cawthorn. The Republicans' response next. Back in our world lead, Ukrainian officials estimate more than 20,000 civilians. 20,000 have been killed in Mariupol since the fierce attack by the Russians first began. Much of the city has been completely leveled, and Ukrainians say they're struggling to evacuate civilians. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh sat down with one Ukrainian soldier who was fighting for Mariupol before Russia held him prisoner for nearly three weeks. This is how
15: Klib's war ends. But if you told him he was lucky... He'd probably agree. He fought for Mariupol in the other steel factory, Ilich, since the war began. Put tourniquets on friends. Felt the heat of Russian tanks blasting his building from just metres away. He survived. <sighs> but only
16: just. Here,
15: after 17 days, as a wounded prisoner in
16: Russia. Very often when I close my eyes, I see that moment when the tank was firing at me and my side getting injured. On the day of my injury, one of my boys, a machine gunner, was killed. Every time it's personal. Every time I heard it over the walkie-talkie or in person that someone was dead, it would conjure memories of him. His mind, also
15: in pieces, left grappling with fragments of the worst fighting in Europe for decades.
16: You know there's a point when the brain accepts it, seeing the phosphorus missiles, seeing aviation flying in. When this became normal, that was scary. We learned how to fall asleep with this accompaniment. Instead, it became scary to fall asleep in the silence. Two moments, though, haunt him here. The first time I used tourniquets on my friend, and the second scene is this. We saw aviation destroying whole hangars. Watching a huge hangar, I have nothing left in just seconds. This has really been engraved on my memory.
15: Wounded on April the 10th, when he regained consciousness
16: he was not where he thought he was. First time I found out I was held captive was when we were inside an ambulance, me and another guy with similar injuries. He asked, are you ours? And they replied, it is unclear now who you mean by "ours." now. They said I was under the guard of the Ministry of State Security of the Separatist DPR. But it was scarier when I got to the Separatist hospital. I was told by a Russian soldier, you'll have to forget Ukrainian now. You will only get help if you ask in Russian.
15: The Russians kept him alive, he says,
16: so they could exchange him for their own. There were two of us bedridden. So we had to be fed by nurses, so they would say, because of you my son got killed. I tried to be understanding, but they were accusing us of things we never did. And we had Russian news read to us all the time, in the morning and evening. That was a lot of pressure on the mind, a distortion of reality.
15: On April the 27th, the exchange happened and he was put on a plane. His pelvis crushed, his lower jaw broken, brain concussed,
16: but he can still feel his legs. And I also have problems with my eyes, because of constant bright flashes and dust. So at first they were glazed, then they opened. For now, I still can't see with my left and my right only silhouettes. My body was broken, but not my spirit. My doctor says that I would be able to pick any New Balance sneakers by autumn. That makes me happy.
15: Jake, a remarkable story there of courage, resilience and ultimately hope. And while the world's focus is, of course, on Azov Star, that fighting across Mariupol has raged for months. Many bodies still lying, sadly, where they fell. But Klib's point during his interview with us was to point out that while we've heard multiple reports and seen multiple images of how Russian soldiers' bodies have been left where they fell in the battlefield, that Ukraine, in his opinion, has done everything they possibly can to rescue him and his colleagues where they have fallen as
1: well. Jake? Nick Payton Walsh in Ukraine for us. Thank you so much. A controversial immigration policy is set to expire in fewer than three weeks with predictions of a massive migrant surge. Can the Biden administration handle it? We have brand new CNN polling to share next. And two Republican congressmen giving the GOP brand new headaches including one who is running up a massive travel bill all on your dime. Stay with us. This is CNN Breaking News. We have breaking news for you now in our politics lead, a new CNN poll gauging views on immigration and zeroing in on Title 42. Title 42 is the Trump-era pandemic policy that the Biden administration plans to let expire on May 23rd in fewer than three weeks. Title 42 allowed border agents to send migrants at the border back to their home countries, using the pandemic as justification for preventing these migrants from claiming asylum. Let's bring in CNN political director David Chalian. And David, many Republicans and, we should note, Democrats have asked the Biden administration to rethink letting this policy expire. And from this poll, it appears they're not alone.
8: Yeah, especially Democrats in uh, tough reelection races, Jake, right? Uh, Take a look overall here in this brand new poll conducted by SSRS uh, for us here at CNN. 57% of Americans in this poll say... No, now is not the right time to end Title 42. Only 43% say yes. So the ending of Title 42 is not where a majority of the country is. And I want you to look at this by party affiliation, Jake. 83% of Republicans uh, now is not the time to end Title 42. That you would expect 52% of independents are in that space. So again, that critical middle of the electorate. And about a third of Democrats uh, you were mentioning, some of them have been vocal about this. A third of Democrats say, now is not the time to lift Title 42, Jake. But you can also see why this number here puts the president in a political bind.
1: One of the issues we hear from Democrats is the Biden administration doesn't have a plan for what happens when Title 42 ends. How do Americans feel? Do they think uh, that the Biden administration is prepared to handle this, this influx of, of more migrants who may try to cross and who will not be able to be sent out as quickly.
8: In a word, no, there's not much confidence at all. Take a look. 74% of Americans in the poll say not confident that the Biden administration is prepared to handle this expected influx of migrants. Only 26% say yes. And take a look here when you break it up by party and we ask, well, how confident are you that the administration can handle this? If you add up somewhat and very confident, 52% of Democrats feeling the administration can handle it. But look down here, not too confident, not at all confident. Add that up, that's 47% of Democrats. So Democrats are split while Republicans overwhelmingly have no confidence in the administration on this.
1: That's stunning, that Democratic number there. Uh, This poll asked if Americans believe that the situation at the border is a crisis. What do the results show?
8: So not as high of a crisis as we've seen in the past. 68% say, yes, it's a crisis at the southern border right now. Last year, April of 2021, that number was at 78%, Jake. And in June of 2019, it was 74%. So if indeed the influx that is expected happens, you might expect to see that 68% number go up. And then I just want to show you this other finding that we asked, just to get a sense of where the country is on whether or not they think Central Americans seeking asylum should be able to do so. Seventy four percent of Democrats say yes. They favor allowing Central Americans seeking asylum. Fifty nine percent of independents say yes. And only a third of Republicans say yes. But it's worth noting a majority of Americans think the higher priority should be limiting the number of people entering into the country. Jake.
1: All right, David Chalian, thanks so much. Let's discuss. Uh, Let me start with you. Uh, Your reaction to one of the top line numbers there, it's pretty remarkable, 74% of Americans polled say they are not confident that the Biden administration is prepared to handle more migrants at the border, and it was almost 50% of Democrats say that they're not confident.
17: I mean, I think that that kind of explains what we have seen from particularly those swing state Democrats uh, up for re election this year. They haven't come out and really backed the Biden administration on this decision. I remember Senator Raphael Warnock and one of Georgia, someone up for re election, not coming out and agreeing with, this, agreeing with this decision. I think these numbers start to show us why you have a significant number of Democrats who themselves. Are wary. If we can go back to the primary, though, this was an issue Democrats have had consistently. They were much easy. They were much more comfortable saying what the Trump administration was doing wrong on immigration rather than providing an affirmative plan for what the Biden administration or what Democrats would do correctly. I think this is still an outgrowth from that, and we're seeing a kind of grassroots sense of some voters saying that the administration does not, is, does not seem fully prepared on this issue, and that's going to be something to watch out for.
1: And, and Phil, um, Senator Mark Kelly from Arizona, Democrat, up for re-election, he's called out the Biden administration saying they don't have a plan right. for this influx uh, when Title uh, 42 expires in two and a half weeks. Um, how do Democrats say send us back to Washington, keep us in control in the Senate and the White House and the House, uh, if the American people have so little confidence of the government to do basics like this?
18: Well, I think that latter question is sort of the broad question for the Democrats in the midterms, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, a lot of the reason you see those numbers of lack of confidence in the Biden administration is because the Biden administration has demonstrated to the American people, or at least the American people have perceived that they ought not to have confidence in them. I do think it's important, though, to recognize that when we talk about the influx once Title 42 is repealed, Biden administration is already getting hammered for the numbers of people that are coming to the border, even though a lot of those people are then removed from the country, right? And those numbers are actually inflated by Title 42. If you go to the DHS numbers... They eject a lot of people from the uh, from the country who then come right back in in the same month. So it actually inflates the number of apprehensions at the border. And so I think the Biden administration has realized they're not going to get a political win on this from having Title 42 because they're still taking the hit for the number of apprehensions each month at the border. I'm not sure how many people are actually going to if how how much that apprehensions number is going to increase. The question is, are there the facilities in the United States to handle the people? And that's where the rubber hits the road.
1: Yeah, and there's also this issue of comprehensive immigration reform that the Biden administration has decided. We're not going to put any skin in the game on this because it's a loser in Congress. Mm-hmm. Let's turn to a couple uh headaches in Congress. Uh, Republican Congressman Madison Cawthorn, uh, he's in a tough reelection campaign, Republican from North Carolina. Another day, another video of Madison <laughs> Cawthorn doing something. This one, uh, he's uh, dug up by an opposition group uh, showing him uh, naked in bed uh, with a colleague or cousin or friend or something. Uh, the 26-year-old says in the video, that he was being crass with a friend, acting foolish. Uh, tough to disagree with with the, the crass part of that. <laughs> it does add to a, recent, a, a list of recent incidents involving Coughlin. But I have to say, the Republicans going after him, are they going after him because they object to his politics, his policies, the fact that he keeps getting arrested, uh, trying to bring a gun on a plane, uh, his MAGA embrace, his lies about the election? Or is it just because... A few months ago, he said that Republicans had invited him to orgies and cocaine parties. I mean, it would seem that, that all of what brought us to this point with Madison Cawthorn
17: was not objectionable enough for those folks who had this, these videos to really come out with this so far— we have seen a turning point over the last uh, over the last month where people have been able to say, uh, who have been sitting on, frankly, damaging piece of information after damaging piece of information. He has tried to pin it saying it was the past. But this is someone who's young, whose who's crass and youthful behavior was mere years ago. It's going to be hard for him to walk away from that. But- they're timing it to this re-election. You know, this this opposition has been dumping partly because they want to see him removed. They want the voters to do what the leadership has not been able to do. But that's not certain. We do not know if he's going to, he might be able to come out of this and be able to look back at the Republican establishment
1: and say, hey, I'm still here. It's, an, it's interesting. Yes, he, bl- he blamed it on uh, indiscretions in his early 20s. He's right. 26. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that was. But do, do you think that uh, this is because of the cocaine uh, allegation that he made to, like, some podcaster or something that he'd been, you know, invited to orgies by Republicans, cocaine by Republicans, or is it just because the primary's coming up?
18: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, I, I'm going to go sort of a little different here, and I just actually filed a piece on this. I think in part it's that he's a young guy who's very online. and We were just mm-hmm. sort of talking about this, but, like, He grew up, I mean, I I looked it up, he was three when Google was founded, right? I mean, he's had, iPhones have been out more than half of his life. So he grew up in this culture where you're taking pictures and sharing them and doing videos. That doesn't excuse getting arrested with a gun at the airport. It doesn't excuse driving. It doesn't excuse all the allegations in Congress. But part of this, too, is just cultural. He's a young guy in an institution where the average age is 58 years old. And there's going to be a culture clash. And I think we're sort of in this weird moment where young people who experience life online, have not yet really entered the halls of power. And part of that tension is this.
17: But those videos have been with these folks for a while. Right. Oh, the switches of oh, yeah. <laughs>
1: because of something That's he true. did. So the, another issue, CNN's Manu Raju reviewed a new watchdog report that raises questions about Republican Congressman Paul Gosar uh, of uh, Arizona, who's uh, been a fan of uh, the white supremacist uh, conferences. Okay. And he spent more than one million taxpayer dollars on travel. That's more than any other House member in the past five years. Gosar is on uh, the House Oversight Committee. He notes on his website, quote, I will continue to cut wasteful federal spending wherever I can. Now, his office denies misusing any funds. But is this yet another Republican
18: that could hurt Republicans' chances or no? He's just... I mean, Paul Gosar has done so many embarrassing things over the course of the past several years, I find it hard to believe he's going to hurt their chances. I mean, he sort of has immersed himself in this sort of MAGA caucus with Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates and so on and so forth. And I think that's part of the reason he's spending so much money is getting invited to places where he didn't get invited before yeah. because he's been so hard right on this stuff. You know, I mean, look, he went and, you know, he's been tiptoeing with white nationalists, right? Like, right. if that's not going to hurt you, then I don't know what's going to hurt you.
17: Yeah, I, I agree. This is someone who has really made their name off of this stuff, who has used Congress as a launching pad to go to these different places. That's partly why we see that high travel budget. That was actually in Paul Gosar's district a couple years ago at something called Trump Stock Woodstock for Trump Oh, fans. I remember that. Next yeah. to, And it was next to white national, next to people openly talking anti-Semitic, openly racist things. And this was a sitting congressman who spoke at that event. And I don't think if those things are going to come back to Harlem, uh, <laughs> I don't think a travel budget is going to do it either.
1: Probably not. I said Herndon and Philip Bump, thanks to both of you. Good to see you. Coming up, sailor suicides and other mysterious deaths of crew members aboard a U.S. aircraft carrier. Up next, new insight into the Pentagon's response and the push in Congress for answers. Stay with us. Our national lead, the U.S. Navy, taking extraordinary measures in response to a very troubling series of deaths, including three suicides in the space of one week and at least four suicides total among the crew of the aircraft carrier USS George Washington. CNN's Pentagon correspondent Oren Lieberman went to Newport News, Virginia, where more than 200 crew members are being allowed to move off the ship, and some are describing just horrible conditions aboard it.
19: For nearly five years, the USS George Washington has been here at the Newport News shipyard. Its refueling and overhaul process delayed multiple times. But the ship needs fixing in more ways than one. Current and former crew members who spoke with CNN say the nuclear-powered aircraft carrier was never ready for sailors and the environment on board was unlivable. These images from the ship provided to CNN Show the conditions on board. In these videos, a broken washing machine flooded nearby compartments, a bathroom in disrepair. CNN was unable to board the ship to see these conditions firsthand, but sailors say this was the norm. One sailor who wanted to remain anonymous told us about power outages, no hot water, unbearable temperatures, and the food.
5: They just run out of food. And if they had anything left, it would be, if you're lucky, you know, a little cereal thing or a they like
0: one little chicken leg that may or may not be undercooked.
19: What happened when you tried to flag some of these issues to your superiors or when others tried to flag them? Um, absolutely nothing. On Facebook, former sailor Jacob Grella said he was so freaking happy when he found out he was assigned to the carrier not far from his home in Richmond. But soon, he says, weekend trips home became an escape from the carrier. With a year left on the ship, he tried to make an appointment with the ship psychologist, only to find out it was a six-month wait. I tried to
2: tell my leadership that this, is, this could be a reason why these deaths are occurring. And what did they say? I was met with the same negative uh, feedback.
19: In the past 12 months, the Navy says seven sailors on the USS George Washington have died, at least four by suicide. Sailors say the Navy brought in mental health resources after three of those suicides occurred in one week in April. One of those sailors who died by suicide was Xavier Sander, who was just a year out of high school. His father says he will
3: always be the family hero. He loved his job. He did his 12-hour shifts. And how do you sleep on an on a aircraft carrier with jackhammering and smoke and smells during the day? So he would sleep in his car. Um, it's just awful. No, no sailor should have even been living on that ship in those conditions.
19: The Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy, the branch's top enlisted sailor, came here to the shipyard a couple weeks ago to speak with the sailors on board. The message, he later said in a statement, was to hear the difficulties and the challenges those sailors face. But sailors who were there who spoke with CNN say the underlying message they heard was, get used to it, it could be worse. One sailor called the visit laughable and offensive. The Navy surged more mental health resources to the ship following the suicides, including a special intervention team and an additional psychologist. An investigation into the suicides is expected to be completed this week. Another investigation into the command climate and culture will take more time. The commander of U.S. Naval Air Force Atlantic says they'll look at the quality of life issues, including housing. The Navy began moving about half of the 400 or so sailors living on the ship to different accommodations, promising that those who want another place to live will get it. A former George Washington sailor who left the Navy after his time on the ship called it willful neglect.
5: And That's something that's unacceptable, especially with a country with a military, uh, the budget it has, and the, the, the support it's supposed to have behind it. Um, I mean, it, this is in Afghanistan where you're expecting those circumstances. This is Newport News, Virginia.
19: The refueling process and the overhaul process that the USS George Washington is going through now was supposed to take four years. As of right now, it'll go until at least March of next year, meaning nearly six years. And that, sailors say, is part of what has led to these problems, these continuous delays. Jake, the reason they decided to come out and talk to us is because they don't want any other crew to have to go through these same problems, but they fear With another ship already behind the George Washington in the shipyard, some other crews may have to go through these challenges that they have faced now for not only months, but years.
1: Oren Lieberman at the Pentagon for us. Thanks so much. We're joined now by 20-year Navy veteran and Virginia Democratic Congresswoman Elaine Luria. She serves on the House Armed Services, Homeland Security, and Veterans Affairs Committees. Congresswoman, thanks so much for joining us. First of all, your reaction to what we've learned from Oren Lieberman's report, especially the descriptions of a sailor sleeping in his car and other Another describing willful neglect.
20: Well, Jake, um, as you know, I had the opportunity to go visit the George Washington um, earlier this week. Um, I'll start out by saying that, you know, any death of our service members, anyone in our Navy family is a tragedy. Um, and the fact that there was a string uh, of three of these in such close proximity, it's one of those things where one has to stop and say they're really Uh, needs to be a deep look um, at what is happening um, at this command, at other commands in similar circumstances within the shipyards. I started by writing a letter uh, to the Chief of Naval Operations um, asking tough questions. What investigation are you doing? When are we going to expect the results? Tell us about these things. You know, we hear in our office phone calls from uh, these sailors who are constituents of ours in the district um, to get answers to those questions. And one of the things I requested is I need to go to the ship. I need to walk around. I need to talk to sailors. I need to see the living conditions. Um, I was the executive officer on a ship myself, and you know, the EXO does something every day called a, a messing and birthing inspections, You're walking through uh, the birthing compartments, the mess decks where people eat, and inspecting those things, talking to sailors. And you know, so I wanted to have a little bit of time on the ship and, and have a walk through like that and, and hear from the crew.
1: And what did they tell you?
20: Well, you know, the shipyard environment is incredibly tough, Um, and I talk to a lot of junior sailors. This is their first command, the first place they've been in the Navy since they've been out of boot camp, the only thing they know about the Navy, Um, and they're trained for specific skills uh, when they go through boot camp, when they sign the line to enlist and come in. And it's understandable that they have to spend some time in a shipyard. The ship requires uh, repair and overhaul, but should we be sending these most junior sailors right to the shipyard environment? And you know, these are lengthy overhauls. It's a refueling of the carrier at the 25 year point to get another 25 years of service out of it. Um, but Newport New Shipbuilding, it's an isolated place for sailors who don't have cars. The only place they have to live is on the ship. Um, they're very isolated and then put COVID on top of that. Um, and then the challenging uh, environmental conditions of an industrial environment to live in. Um, so I talked to the sailors and I talked to leadership, and you know, one of the things I took away is because this availability, this maintenance period, just got extended another 19 months, a decision had been made uh, several months back to start moving the crew back on board. Um, but they, the leadership clearly said, had we known, had we known that it was going to have this extension of another 19 months, you know, really, in, in hindsight, I don't think we, we would have made that decision at the time. So. You know, I think that, you know, these are stressful situations and I think that many things can add up. Um, There's sort of these friction points for sailors. Long working hours, working shift work, having to work in a shipyard, being away from home for the first time, um, you know, an industrial environment and, you know, even the situation of the shipyard, you know, some sailors who do live off the ship have to commute, park. It takes them almost two hours just to get to and from work in each direction. Um, and so there's things we need to look at. You know, I went there both as a, as a former officer who served on six different ships, deployed three times on carriers, you know, knowing what the expectation was and what I would see uh, or what I should see. And, you know, these questions of like, why when there's always a carrier? I mean, we have eight more carriers to refuel. It's another 40 to 50 years we're going to have a ship at that pier at Newport New Shipbuilding being refueled. Um, We should be making investments and making sure that sailors have a quality of life that can, you know, be healthy for them and make them more productive sailors um, and have a more positive experience during their time in their Navy. So now as a member of Congress, as the vice chair of the Armed Services Committee, you know, I want to ask the questions, like, what investments do we need to be making to make that infrastructure better?
1: So last week you wrote a letter to the chief of naval operations demanding immediate action to ensure the safety of this crew. Have you gotten a response?
20: Um, I am waiting for a written response, but I have certainly gotten a response from the CNO's staff. Uh, several of them accompanied me, along with the four-star commander of Fleet Forces Command, um, to visit the ship. Um, but then I broke off separately, had that opportunity that I asked for to speak to sailors. So um, I know that a, a more thorough response with the investigation that Oren mentioned will be forthcoming.
1: You're also in the Veterans Affairs Committee. There, there's this never-ending series of complaints about, about services needing to improve for veterans.
20: Um, That is true. This is definitely a a challenge um, and one that I take very seriously in my role on both of those committees. Um, And we truly do have to provide um, the services, the health care that these veterans and active duty service members deserve. I mean, they literally sign the line, They, they risk their lives in the defense of our country, and it is our responsibility to take care of them. And I'm um, going to continue to ask the, these tough questions and work with my colleagues to make this, this situation for the crew of the George Washington and every ship that comes behind them better, as well as, you know, to take care of our veterans.
1: Navy veteran Democratic Congresswoman Elaine Luria of the great Commonwealth of Virginia. Yes. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, leads and tips are pouring mm-hmm. in for the manhunt for the missing corrections officers and the inmate in Alabama. What investigators are now sharing about the case? That's coming up. Also internationally today, an Alabama sheriff tells CNN that investigators have some promising leads in the search for an accused killer and the deputy who apparently helped him escape from jail. They have been on the run for nearly a week. CNN's Ryan Young is in Alabama keeping track of the manhunt. As the manhunt enters its seventh day, tips are coming in
21: from several states. Investigators widening the search from escaped Alabama inmate Casey White and corrections officer Vicky White, no relation, with reported sightings from Florida to Kentucky. We have several leads that we're following up on. Some of them look promising. We hope they pan out. Their quick escape was caught on video last Friday, leaving the correctional facility together in a patrol car under the guise of going to the courthouse for a bogus mental health evaluation. Then this gas station camera caught the patrol car passing by on its way to a shopping center where the alleged getaway vehicle was parked. A local councilman tells CNN he saw Vicki drive by and nothing seemed suspicious.
4: They drove by slowly. She waved at me twice.
21: Here's where the investigation hit a snag. According to the sheriff, the description of the alleged getaway vehicle was never supposed to be released to the public. That really set us back as far as knowing what they're going to drive in. We expect they're going to change vehicles. Investigators are, however, piecing together why they disappeared. Clues of a romantic relationship from the inmates who came for it now corroborated with the timeline. Casey White was in our facility in 2020 for an arraignment hearing. He was moved back to the Department of Corrections where he was serving 75 years for multiple charges out of Limestone County. During that time when he was in state prison, the sheriff says Vicki White stayed in touch by phone. He returned to her facility in February awaiting trial appearances and mounting evidence of a methodically planned escape on what was said to be her last day on the job. Court documents show that Vicki White sold her home two weeks prior for $95,000, well below the current market value of $235,000.
0: Clearly, Lots of planning went into this.
21: Vicki White held a respected position as the assistant director of corrections at the Lauderdale County Sheriff's Office. The county's DA, who's worked with her for 17 years, is shocked by all this.
0: She was a longtime trusted employee at our, at our jail, and she just exploited the system. And that's why it's so shocking. And he has a message for her. I would hope she would come home. I mean, you know, I think she's in danger. I would say come home.
21: Yeah, Jake, we're hoping to get another uh, sort of update from the Marshal Service. But look at this. This is car number nine. This is the car that helped uh, them escape. This is the one they got into and drove away from that facility in. And if you look on the inside, you can still see a water bottle that's been left in here. Investigators said they don't need the evidence from this car because, obviously, they know who they're looking for. But when you try to get all the pieces together, Jake, anything can help. They're hoping for more calls.
1: All right, Ryan Young, thank you so much. In Florence, Alabama, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper, or you can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. You can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room after this short break. See you tomorrow.
0: When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness